Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Sonic Echo. Welcome to Sonic Echo, where we listen to and discuss old-time radio shows. I'm your host, Jeff Billard, and we're in our series of the Western, where we're looking at specific old-time radio Westerns, as well as the overarching myths of the Old West. And as always, I'd like to bring in my amigos, two guys who we all know enjoy their vittles. They're not afraid of any man that walks, and, well, they're the best shots in their respective countries. My amigos, Jack Ward. Could you guys stop shooting there? Give me a headache. <laughs> and hey, how's it going, brother? <laughs> I, I feel like I should be dressed as Stevie Nicks for some reason for this particular particular episode. I'm not sure why. I always imagine you dressed as Stevie Nicks. Is that wrong? <laughs> and that's why I love you, brother. Nice. Uh, and the show today is? Today we're going to look at Singing Guns which was uh, a Max Brand Western that they turned into a radio show for Studio One, uh, which was an interesting, interesting show. Only lasted for one year. Um, And it kind of took an interesting tack because it took novels and short stories uh, and books and made them into radio dramas. Like some of the things they did were uh, Red Badge of Courage, Enemy of the People, Farewell to Arms, um, so it's pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff. And it's all led by a Canadian Jack, Fletcher McCardle. Yes, I know. He's, 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 <laughs> yep. a, he's a big name. I, I don't know if you want me to talk a bit about him now or if you wanted to talk about him later on. But um, Give no, us a little um, insights. Yeah, so uh, Fletcher Markle was, uh, he, he got his, he cut his teeth on early radio way back in the days in, in Vancouver, uh, CKWX. And uh, there's a book that I actually have. They mention it in one of the websites. It's looking called The Birth of Radio by Bill McNeil and Morris Wolf. And I know Bill, Bill McNeil very well in CBC Radio lore as well. But Fletcher was born in Winnipeg, which is amazing. So many great uh, Canadians started off in Winnipeg. And I think it's just like the mixture of the, the blowing prairies and the cold and loneliness that gets people uh, you know, working on their creative craft. But he, he started also with a great Canadian troupe of actors uh, in Vancouver um, in the 30s and the 40s. Um, I guess John Draney, um, Bernie Braden, and Alan Young. I know Alan Young well, but I also know the other member who's like one of my favorite people listening to on CBC Radio for years is Lister Sinclair. And Lister Sinclair was the host of a show called Ideas, uh, which is still going in CBC and has had two other... Uh, host since he sort of retired and since passed away um but what a great voice that he had and uh, i have i think i've sent you uh, a couple of clips of lister sinclair one of my favorites that i grew up listening to was he did one on dungeons and dragons which was just really cool 
And uh, so Ideas was always about sort of um, society and literature. And he did he did some really cool things like the Court of Ideas, where he would say, you know, um, who's it? Who's in? Uh, who's in trouble? Or no, let me try that again. He would say, who's at fault for war crimes, the Celts or the Romans? And then he would get a bunch of different actors playing the main roles in both uh, of the conflict, arguing to him as the judge in character. And then he would uh, refer to experts where they would interview people on the side, professors. They go, well, actually, they were right about this, but wrong about that. And then he would rule (laughs) one way or another, which was an amazing series. Um, I'm sure it took a lot to put together. And the other series that I really loved that he did in Ideas was called Drumming Up the Ghost of. And he would have a one-on-one conversation with people like Shakespeare and stuff like that. Um, and and then he would have have conversations with them about contemporary issues and doing all the research that they they could. He'd figure out what the, those uh, people in the in the past would have thought about living in life today and and what they would have found interesting. So and it would have had an interesting actor playing the role. So really cool. He was very uh, innovative, even in uh, sort of an informative way. Years later, Lister Sinclair obviously loved drama, and Fletcher Markle himself jumped ship and went to the United States. Um, Well, he went to Toronto during World War II and worked in CBC. He was also the person who was a key for bringing over Lauren Green into the States. So there's a little Western uh, uh, connection because he would uh, ultimately get him on uh, Studio One and then he would replace an ailing uh, actor there. And that's what got Lauren Green his famous role of Ben Cartwright on Bonanza. So uh, we all owe uh, Fletcher uh, a great, uh, 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 we, we owe him something for that, for sure. Uh, as well, he, nice. he produced a couple of other series, uh, including some TV series, things that you might have heard of, Life with Father, Front Row Center, uh, Thriller, Jigsaw, Night in the Morning, and the Disney film, The Incredible Journey, 1963. Which a lot of wow. us of that oh. age remember watching that on you know the disney sunday <laughs> movie so he 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 uh headed up all of studio one and uh i think the the quality that shows from it comes from that long background of uh what he really loved to do both stories and, and drama so sorry for the long-winded approach but i love to be able to talk about no, some, that's cool. some pretty big name canadian canadians in the history of canadian broadcasting yeah that's great another thing that's interesting about him that uh, at one point he was married to mercedes mccambridge who played sunny in temple of vampires wow Um, yeah i love mercedes mccambridge yeah she's great she's great and i did say his name incorrectly it's it's markle you're right you said it right jack i said it wrong fletcher markle uh (laughs) fantastic uh fantastic uh on radio tv and everything else uh, so it's great. And the other thing is that this particular um, show was done, written by, well, the, the novel was written by Max Brand, who is an amazing character in himself. His real name was Frederick Faust, and he wrote something like 30 million plus published works, published words in his lifetime. Uh, mm-hmm. An amazing output, novels and uh, yeah. plays and he had like six and, or seven other uh, pseudonyms yep. too didn't he 
Yeah, because the one thing I read is because he wrote, he want, really wanted to be a poet. And mm. he used he used his name, Faust, in his poetry, but everything else he used a pseudonym because he, he from what I read, he grew up uh, quite poor. Mm. And um, he... He, he felt like the Westerns were beneath him. He felt like those stories. And so he used Max Brand in the Westerns. Um, he didn't wow. really want to be associated with those. And it, just, it was just his poetry. He lived in Italy. He had a butler. He had servants. Uh, everything. He was, he was incredibly rich. Um, wow. Yeah. And so that's, well, so there's, a, you know, there's I, a whole history there. Yeah, go ahead. I was, I was wondering if, um, you know, it was just speculation. Maybe, you know, a biographer would know more if anyone's ever done one, but, um, you know, since he did have so much uh, classical reading that he then put into his westerns and a lot of his stuff, I wonder if after working with the form, he maybe had a better um, opinion of the genre. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, because yeah, because he might have understood. Oh, there, this is you know, because he does do really wonderful westerns. So at some point, he figures out how to really make them work, and it doesn't seem like hack work. Mm-hmm. So at some point, I'm hoping that maybe he learned to, um, you know like it better or maybe it's a misrepresentation of wow i don't dislike it but i'd rather be a poet and i'm kind of bitter about my you know the time that i'm living in that i can't do that mm-hmm. you know maybe there's more nuance to his beliefs that that we're not going to be aware of because we can't ask him right now well there's a quote i read that he said something he said something about the the western and the people in the westerns he called them disgusting at one point and yeah. that's a that's a quote wow. in a in a biography so um so yeah there was some disdain there for his upbringing there's another element to keep in mind. I found this out while reading a, a biography of L. Ron Hubbard, famously from Scientology. That before that, he was like a crazy, uh, crazily prolific pulp writer. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of science fiction, but a ton of other stuff. And one of the reasons why he had a number of uh, pseudonyms, and John Wyndham, famous for the Chrysalids and um, the Triffids and a bunch of other books, uh, uh, he, those guys, many of those people had two or three different pseudonyms if they were fast writers, because nobody could believe they could pop out books that quickly. So mm-hmm. having a pseudonym was a, ne- a better way to be able to sell a book, because then he was like, well, I just bought one from Frank Austin, so I can't get another one. I got one. Like, obviously, it's going to just be crap, so I'll just put my name in as George Owen Baxter, and then the next one, I'll put in Walter C. Butler. And that's, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm using pseudonyms of Max Brand, by the way, for all those ones that he used. Right. So it was a way for them to, like, really just, you know, work as hard as they could pumping out books and selling a bunch of them as if they were other authors, too. That's, That's interesting. At one point, he did work as a cattle rancher. So he had some firsthand knowledge, at least, of how that of how that worked and Lothar to what you said about being steeped in the classics, um, he was known in, in one article I read as the Homer of the High Country. Uh, ah, nice, yeah. that's a great. Yeah, name. and <laughs> also another yeah, another there's moniker. there's a yeah there's an article um, that I read and it was called Shakespeare of the Range. Um, <laughs> so his another nice yeah one. so his work is his work is uh, certainly held in high esteem. Uh, to be sure, yeah. even though he may or may not have have liked it or whatever, have felt good about it. Um, I don't know. But and uh, for those who are interested, I looked up on LibriVox and on as well on Gutenberg, and there are nineteen of his books that are in Ooh. the public domain. Nineteen, well, at least oh, nineteen really cool. that are in LibriVox already recorded. 
So um, very nice. Alcatraz, Blackjack, Bull Hunter, The Cross Brand, The Garden of Eden, Gunman's Reckoning, Harrigan, A Long Long Trail, The Night Horseman, Out of the Dark, The Rangeland Avenger, The Riders of the Silences, uh, The Seventh Man. There's a couple, of, obviously, some more, but there's a bunch in there that uh, The Way of the Lawless. I, my question is, I don't know what to, which one to read, listen to first, because they all good sound good. Yeah. The Untamed, The Ten Foot Chain, <laughs> Sheriff Larrabee's Prisoner. There's a bunch of fun stuff in there. So, Well, you need to put it onto a large circular uh, pattern <laughs> and then drink a bottle of whiskey <laughs> while singing moonshine songs and then spin, spin it, it. Nice. and see which one it points to. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. There you go. We have a process. But to complete the ritual, you have you have to scream out "Yeehaw!" <laughs> at the end as soon as it picks one. Otherwise, the ritual it won't, won't work, work right. Properly. That's ritual. Right. Go. I love it. But it, but if you yeehaw just right, the spirit of Max Brand will come out and give you commentary while you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting thing about uh, Faust or Max Brand uh, is that he he uh, wanted to be a war correspondent. He couldn't due to a heart condition. He couldn't. Uh, be in World War Two, so he he finagled himself a uh, position as a war correspondent for Harper's Magazine, and he went over to wow. Italy. Yeah, where he went over to Italy, and he was with the frontline unit in Italy, and uh, he got hit with some shrapnel. And he told the he told the medics to go take care of the other guys first, uh, and then he died in ni- 1944. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, uh, interesting fellow to yep. be sure, um, and a prolific writer, which we'll right. get into more, I think, on the other side um, of this. Oh yeah, how much he would have written if he made it through the war, eh? Oh my God, yeah, because he was still you know? fairly young at that point, right? Sure, yeah, he yeah. was. I don't even think he was quite fifty like that. So yeah, um, yeah, amazing. Um, Amazing. So, um, it said that he was 51 when he died, uh, and he had written over 201 full-length books. Um, well. I feel I know, like huh? the laziest lazy that ever did lays. Whenever <laughs> I, I, I know we're, we're all we're all just pikers compared to him. Yeah. <laughs> he was just crank, and he cranked it all out. I think he cranked it all out longhand too, if I remember right. I can imagine you know, people I, like I could... him and Robert E. Howard. Yeah. You know, yes. it's like God. You know. Wow. It's like they get off the toilet and they're like, okay, send this out. What? You've written another book? You just sat down. <laughs> they're just cranking them out. That's right. Cool. Anything no, else I'm before we go to, to the to uh Yeah. To the uh segment. Singing. We guns. good? Right on. You're good. All right. So this is uh from 1947 and it's called Singing Guns. Um, and it's just, I really enjoyed it when I heard it and it's an, it's an hour long. So I'll just tell you that before we, uh, go into it. So go ahead and listen and enjoy, and we'll see you when we come back. This is Studio One at CBS. Governor. Sheriff Karadak's going up into the hills all alone after that outlaw, Rhiannon. He sent you this note. Karadak's a fool to go after Rhiannon in his own country. He'll get himself killed. I can't afford to lose the best sheriff in the state. And listen to this. Dear Governor, 
think I've discovered where Rhiannon's been hiding out all this time. Maybe away a while. I'm going up Mount Laurel to find the singing guns. What's that crazy fool mean? I don't know, Governor. Whoever heard of singing guns? With a dramatic moment from Sing Guns by Max Brand, CS invites you to Studio One, a full-hour Columbia feature production from the pages of the world's great storytellers. Stories known and loved by millions. And now to introduce tonight's great story, here is the director of Studio One, Fletcher Markle. Tonight, as you've surely guessed, we're heading out to the Wild West on a trail of hard-fisted, hard-riding, hard-shooting adventure. Singing Guns is about a sheriff and an outlaw and their strange friendship. As to the ways of the sheriff, they were somewhat extra-legal by modern standards, but then that was very like the Old West. Max Brand, who wrote the story, is probably familiar to you as the author of Destry Rides Again and the creator of Dr. Kildare. In fact, he's the author under his own and other names of more novels and stories than any writer since Alexander Dumas. Tonight, in Vincent McConnor's version for listening of Singing Guns, you'll be hearing Myron McCormick and Gary Merrill, who come to us respectively from the original Broadway casts of the hit plays State of the Union and Born Yesterday. Mr. McCormick is playing Rhiannon, the outlaw, and Mr. Merrill is Sheriff Karadak. Which way do they go? They went that way, partner. West. Sheriff Karadak had gone up Mount Laurel and found his man. As he sighted his rifle muzzle over the broad back of this man sitting peacefully, playing a mouth organ in the sun, Karadak realized there was no other man in the West like him. And for a moment, he hesitated. Then, almost automatically, Karadak raised his rifle and shifted his left foot a bit forward. Rhiannon! Rhiannon, don't draw your guns. I've come to take you in. that you keep saying about singing guns? Rhiannon. Well, looks like you come out of it at last. You, you brought me here to your cave. Yep, this is my hole in the wall. But you, you could have killed me where I fell. I don't never kill dead men. One thing I'd like to know, how you find me. A long time ago, I heard tell of a cave up here. The Indians told stories about it. I got to thinking I decided this is the only place you could take. Do you like some food? Rhiannon, if I'd worked for a week and never ate nothing all that time, 
I'd only just begin to be as hungry as I am right now. What might you take a fancy to? If I had my pick, I'd kind of begin with some trout, grilled nice and brown. <laughs> I like a man who enjoys his victuals. You and me should have met up long ago, Caradac. Oh, so you know my name. Found it on a letter in your pocket. Sheriff Owen Caradac. Now you rest right here until I get back. Where are you off to? I'm fixing to catch us a mess of trout. Sleep? Oh, just drowsing here in the sun. Me? I never felt so rested in all my life. Well, that means your wound is healed, Karadak. You're strong again. How long have I been here? Oh, ten days, maybe two weeks. We haven't done much talking, have we? Nothing much to talk about. Two men like each other, there's no need to talk about it. I come up here to arrest you and take you back to town. I kind of like it up here on Mount Laurel. How long you been hiding here? More than two years. That's quite a spell. Yep, the winters get kind of long. It was an accident, I guess. What was? That trouble you had two years ago. Nope, that wasn't no accident. It was a gent from the mines. Liked to play cards. Always won. Everybody suspected he cheated. Only nobody'd accuse him of it, seeing as how he owned the mines. Always makes a difference who cheats you. Not to me. He tried it with me, and I accused him of having some extra cards. He grabbed a chair and whanged me on the head. I killed him. You shouldn't have run off to the hills. You should have waited and stood trial. Decided I wasn't fit to live around with people in a town. Not with my temper. They never would have done nothing to you for killing a thief. And in self-defense. I got mad. <laughs> I guess we're kind of alike, you and me. Only I'm a sheriff, and I can afford to get mad. You're an outlaw. When you want something, you just go down to the valley and hold up a stagecoach. I never held up no stagecoach. That the truth? On your oath? I swear it. I never held up nobody. Rhiannon, you got to come down to the valley. Are you planning to take me back, Sheriff? One way or another. Well, I guess they'd be waiting for me down there with open arms. And a rope. Folks know you by that name, Mane of Hair, you wear, blowing around your shoulders and by your beard. Suppose you clipped your hair and shaved clean. You'd be like another man. I could never leave Mount Laurel if that's what you're getting at. Why not? The air's as good and the water's as pure and the deer's as fat down in the valley. Who sent you up to get me? Nobody. It was my own idea, coming up here. You're the only outlaw left in these parts, Rhiannon. Sort of a blot in my record. And I'm going to take you down. Are you, Caradac? I am. Though nobody will know it but me. Rhiannon, I'm going to take you down and plant you. And you're going to grow. What kind of way are you talking? Friendly way. Like I said, you're a lot alike, you and me. You know, I've felt that ever since you come here. We both enjoy our vittles. We're not afraid of any man that walks. And I guess we're the two best shots in the whole state. Rhiannon of the Singing Guns. Why do you call them Singing Guns? There's an old Welsh saying. You see, way back, my folks came from Wales. Mine, too. Well, sir, that's another way we're alike. What was this saying, Karadak, about the Singing Guns? It's one my grandpa used to say. It goes like this. There are three things that seldom heard, 
an invitation to a feast from a miser, wisdom from the mouth of a Saxon, and the song of the birds of Rhiannon. Who was this here other Rhiannon? That I never learned. But my grandpa said if you ever heard the singing of the birds of Rhiannon, you'd be frozen in silence for 80 years. Your birds are your guns. My singing guns. That's pretty good. Put your guns away, Rhiannon. Put them in that cage. Go cut your hair and shave off that beard. I'm going to take you down to the valley and nobody will ever know it but me. You don't aim to put me in the jailhouse. I don't. I swear it. Here's my hand on it. I believe you, Karadak. And I'll come with you. You nearly finished? Yeah, haircut and beard shaved. How do I look? I'll be dead blasted. I thought you was older than me. <laughs> I'm 25. Everybody thinks you're 40 or more. Nobody will know it's you. When are we starting down? Right away. We'll put out the campfire and... Oh, hold on. Yep. We got to get a new name for you. How about... How about John? John Gwynn. John Gwynn? Yeah, what do you think of that for a name? Why, it'll do fine. All right, John Gwynn. Let's saddle the horses and head down the valley. Sheriff? Nope. Just wanted to know what you think of this part of the valley. Good soft country. Man could get rich here. Yeah. But everywhere in this valley, there's people who'd like to put a noose around my neck. I don't know them, but they might know me. <laughs> they think that Rianne and the outlaws are a man of 45. You're just a sleepy-looking kid. They'll never recognize you. Oh, just one thing. Yeah, what's that? If you ever should run into any kind of trouble... Make for Mount Laurel and your hole in the wall. I'll come up to you up there. Remember that. I'll remember. What do you think of this old ranch up ahead? It's got a look about it. I can smell the honeysuckle growing over the little house. Uh, it's just a run-down old shack. Could be fixed up mighty pretty. Sort of fits into my mind. Like I'd seen it before somewhere. How'd you like this place for your own? Me? Well, I know it ain't much. Well, I'd never ask for nothing better. Except a woman to put in it, maybe? You always got to ride ahead, don't you? <laughs> a few years back, Jen needed some money, and I let him have it. When he couldn't make good, I took this place in payment. And this is your place? Not anymore. Go on in and hang up your hat, kid. What? From now on, this is our place. Yours and mine. Fifty-fifty. Rhiannon, you're a farmer now. Charlie D. Yeah? My father owns the next ranch. What's your name? I'm called John Gwynn. Guess I 
Ain't invited to come inside. Well, sure. Get down and come on in. We've been aching to take a look at you. Been watching what you've done to this old place here. Yeah? Sit down. Have a smoke. Thanks. You bought this place from Sheriff Karadak, didn't you? How would I be buying a place like this? Light? Yeah, thanks. Sheriff says it's your place. He wants to make me happy. Because you've done so much fixing the place up? Maybe. You want something here? No. The old man told me to see you and talk to you. Friendly fellow, my father. Ain't proud the way some people are. Rides the range just the same as anybody. Is that right? Ain't a calf fold on our ranch he don't know about. Not a twig sprouts in the spring that he don't see. No, sir. He watches everything. Told me to come over and see you. Well, now you've seen me. You're not much of a talker, are you? Only when I have something to say. You work in this place all by yourself? That's right. I should think you'd need a hired hand. Well, maybe later on. You married? Nope. Must be lonely here. Should think you'd need a wife even worse than a hired hand. I manage. I got a pretty sister. Name's Isabella. Nice name. You want to ride over and see her? Thanks. Don't like me, do you? I don't know you. Well, I'll tell Pa that I've seen you. You do that. Good night, Mr. Uh, what was the name? Gwen. Night, Mr. Gwyn. Good night, Mr. D. Mr. Gwyn, I hear someone riding this way. I've been listening to him for the last 30 seconds, Richards. Uh, Go on with your work. I'll see who it is. Yes, sir. I'll have this finished in no time. Morning, Sheriff. Howdy, John. Whoa. Whoa there. Well, what brings you out here? I want to have a talk with you about. Who's that working your forge? My new hired man. Hired man? Who is he? Where'd he come from? I ain't asked him where he's from. Name is Richards. Come to the barn two days ago and asked for a job. No Richards family in these parts? What was it you wanted to talk about? I heard Charlie D was by here last night. That's right. Old man D's got his eye on this place. He's watched what you've been doing here. Made me an offer. $400 an acre. Why, that's... That's more than $20,000. A lot more. I must want this place pretty bad. What did you tell him? I said nothing doing. I told him this was our place. Yours and mine. That's generous, Owen, but you could have hired somebody to fix this ranch up the same as I had. I could never hire any man to do the job you're doing here. Uh, what do you think of Charlie D? I think he's a right smart customer. And all those D's have brains, but Charlie's the smartest of the lot. He's his father's right hand. He didn't suspect who you are, did he? I don't see how he could. Well, I just want you to know, no matter what Charlie D says, we're not selling this place. Thanks, Karadak. Well, I'll be getting back to town. Oh, there's something I wanted to ask you. Oh, what's that? Any idea who might be riding in the foothills every evening around dusk? Mm, couldn't tell you. Listen, it's Charlie D. Why? Well, every evening around sunset, a lone horseman rides through the foothills here. 
He stops for a spell as though he's watching this place. And then he rides on. How long has this been going on? Oh, maybe five nights. I plan to ride up there this evening and find out who it is. You be careful what you do. Sure, Karadak, I'll be careful. Quiet, boy, quiet. Hold on there. Well, I'll be a doggone son of a... It's a girl. Evening, ma'am. Don't come any closer, my friend. Well, I don't aim to do you any harm. What's on your mind? I reckon they sent you here. Well, who are they, ma'am? The D's. They sent you. I know they did. The D's? You tell them you didn't find me and I'll give you money. I'll give you a hundred dollars if you'll say you didn't see me. But I was just thinking you must be the D gal. Then you're not a D? Now, look here. I don't belong to the D family and I don't want your money. I come up here to find out who you are and why you're spying on me. On you? Oh, no. I'm watching the D Ranch. My name is John Gwynn. I'm Nancy Morgan. Does that name mean anything to you? No, ma'am. I can't say it does. Well, if I had another name, I wouldn't be here. The Morgans and the D's are enemies. Have been for generations. Anything I can do to help you, ma'am? Uh, what could one man do against all of them? Even if Rhiannon came down from the mountains to fight for me, it wouldn't help. Rhiannon? What do you know about Rhiannon? They say he's cruel and strong and terrible. But uh, they say he's never cruel to a woman. What would you be needing an outlaw like him for? Who else would break the law for me? I have to get something away from the D's. And who else but Rhiannon would dare to help me? What claim have the D's got against you? No claim. And they never will. They hate me like they hate every Morgan. But I'll never give up to them. Not while there's life in me. Good night, John Gwynn. Well, hey, come back here. Come back. Morning, Sheriff. Why, Brianna. No, Sheriff. My name is John Gwynn. You crazy fool. What are you doing in town? I had to talk with you, Karadak. Couldn't wait till you might be riding out to the ranch next. Anybody see you come into my office? Oh, a lot of people in front of the courthouse. They didn't pay no attention to me. You in a sheriff's office. <laughs> I ought to put you in a cell. Well, go ahead if you want. I I didn't bring no guns with me. <laughs> Don't be a jackass. Sit down. Thanks. What's so important you've ridden into town? Did you ever hear of a family in these parts... Name of Morgan? I sure did. Where do they live, these Morgans? They don't. There ain't no Morgans left. Not since the cattle war. What do you mean, there ain't any left? They're all planted in a row. Boasted they had to be buried with their boots on, and there was. Who killed them? The D's. Who else? The D's? Well, the other day you led me to think they was respectable folks. What kind of folks was these Morgans? They was the kind that was best stayed away from. Cussing, shooting rascals, that's what they was. How do they look? Well, when I was a kid, I used to know a few of them. That was before the D's moved in and cleaned them all up. Yellow hair? That's right. Blue eyes? Every one of them. All looked alike. And they could ride like the devil, shoot like the devil, and lie like the devil. Well, they wouldn't even tell you the truth about the weather. And while they was lying, they'd smile a little at you out of the corner of their eyes. 
And you're certain they're all gone? Man, woman, and child. The D's were plenty thorough. They started at the top and they went right on down to the bottom. Them was the days to be living in, kid. I just seen the sunset of them, the afterglow. <laughs> what are you smiling at? Uh, none of your business. Ah, uh, you better take a vacation, kid. Me? <laughs> when a man talks back to the sheriff and with a criminal record, it's time for him to take a little rest. Karadak, I've met a woman who says her name is Morgan. Morgan? That ain't possible. She has yellow hair and blue eyes. Her name is Nancy. Well, whoever she is, you keep away from her. She's the first woman I've seen in two years. She'll have you hanged, most like. Most like. Well, I'll get back to the ranch. Hold on. Where were you last night round about dusk? Up in the hills. That's just about when I met her. And that's when the Overland Stagecoach was held up between your ranch and town. Karadak, you ain't thinking that... I ain't thinking nothing. But folks here in town, they're saying it was Rhiannon held it up. But I tell you that Listen I... to me, John Gwynn. You go back to that ranch and stay there. And don't you ride into town again. Good shot, mister. Come out of that underbrush, whoever you are, and with your hands up. It's me, Rhiannon. Charlie Deed. You got that deer through the head with one shot. Never saw a farmer shoot like that before. Was a lucky shot. Was it? You know you're poaching, don't you? This here's D-land. Yes, I know. What do you plan to do about it? <laughs> I was joking about the poaching. We keep out everybody but our friends and neighbors. And you're our nearest neighbor. Am I? Matter of fact, I'm glad I ran into you. Pop wants to see you. Yes, about what? He didn't tell me. I'll help you skin that carcass, and then you can ride on home with me. That's a bargain. I've been wanting to meet your father for quite some time. attention to Pop. He always carries on like this. Who are you talking about paying no attention to? You spindle-shafted, half-man, you... This is John Gwynn, Pop. My father, Oliver D. I'm glad to see you, Gwynn. Thanks, sir. Charlie, um, go water them horses while Gwynn and me has a little confab. Yes, sir. I'm going. Gwynn, I admire how you done up that old ranch over there. I've been by and admired to see it. I want to buy that place. What'd you sell it for? It ain't mine to sell. The sheriff, he owns it. Oh, he owned that place quite a few years. Never done nothing with it before. Then you come along and there's nothing in the valley to match with it. Well, how much? I tell you, the sheriff owns it. I only got an interest. How big an interest? Well, half, I suppose. He let you do all that work and then only give you half interest? He's a skinflint. Every Welshman's a skinflint. I'm a Welshman, too, sir. Oh. Well, you let him beat you out. Ought to take a six-gun and go for him. He's Roger. I never use a gun. You killed that deer, didn't you? Lucky shot. Lucky shot. The world is going to pot. Ain't no man anymore. But I can still shoot. See that bit of stick on top of that log? Yes, sir. Well, watch this. Oliver! 
Blasted or missed? You nicked it, sir. That's good shooting. You wouldn't have missed a man. No. I never missed a Morgan. Oliver! Yes, Mrs. D. Yes, Mrs. D. We're coming. Now then, Gwen, name your top figure for that ranch. There ain't none. Hmm. All right. I'll see the sheriff. He'll sell. Not if I don't want him to, and I don't. Anyway, you've already seen him, and he told you he wouldn't. Well, come along. We'll wash up. Mrs. D would give you tarnation if he came in the house with hands like that. Oh, I got to be getting back to my place. Not till after chow. Now come along. Right in here, Mr. Gwynn. You wash up, Mr. D. I did, Mrs. D. We got company for child. I know we have. This is, uh, John Gwynn. Well, come on in. Was it you started Mr. D to shooting? Well, I'm afraid it was, ma'am. I don't allow no guns around this house. The day's gone by for that nonsense. Now, come along and have some chow. Isabella! Where are you? Here I am, Mama. Oh, this here's John Gwynn. As next ranch. You sit here beside me, Mr. Gwynn. No, no, sit across the table. You can talk better. Thank you, ma'am. Isabella's just come home from school. She's been getting finished off. Isn't she pretty, like I told you? Charlie, you let your sister be. Sit down, everybody. Sit down. I've heard about your beautiful ranch, Mr. Gwynn. I want to come over and see it one day soon. Well, you'd be right welcome. Anytime. Here's your soup, Mr. Gwynn. Thank you, sir. Mr. Gwynn's a mighty handsome man. Ain't he, Bella? Of course he is. <laughs> You're making him blush. Young and handsome and set up in the world already with a fine ranch. Well, of all the outrageous talk... Let Papa ramble on. I don't care. Neither does Mr. Gwynn. When I was a girl, young people weren't so forward. More is the pity. Now, Bella and Gwen here will be like old friends before they're an hour older. Of course we will. Won't we, John Gwynn? Oh, yes, ma'am. I, I certainly hope so. Isabella. In the moonlight, I thought... Who did you think it was? Who is this Nancy who comes riding to see you? Well, never mind about that. What are you doing here? There's been a hold-up down the valley. Oh, another one? Well, uh, how does that concern me? There's a posse riding from ranch to ranch asking questions. They've just been to our place, and now they're heading for here. Is the sheriff with them? Yeah. Sheriff Caradac's the one who's asking the questions. I slipped out the back way and rode across country through the foothills to get here ahead of them. But... Why? I came to see that they think it was Rhiannon. Rhiannon? Listen, they're coming. You think I'm Rhiannon, do you? Does it matter? What I think? Yes, Miss Isabella, it matters quite a bit. All right, I'll tell you. It's gotten around what a good shot you are. Somebody saw you hunting. They said only five men in all of Arizona can shoot like that. Four of them are in jail. And the other? His name is Rhiannon. 
that you, John Gwynn? Yes, Sheriff. There's been a holdup in the valley. Two people killed. We think it's the outlaw, Rhiannon. Why did you come here? You're a stranger in these parts, Gwynn. We wanted to ask you a few questions. I'm listening. I've been sent down here from the governor's office to investigate that stagecoach holdup last week. How was Rhiannon, Dennis? Sure it was. The outlaw. Where are you from, Mr. Gwynn? No place special. I've been sort of traveling around, working where I can find a job. And where were you tonight, about two hours ago? I was right here. Ain't been off the ranch since before sunset. Anyway, uh, proving that? Well, I... I was here, with him, all the time. Who are you, miss? That's Miss D, Oliver's daughter. Evening, Miss Isabella. Good evening, Sheriff. Oh, we were just by your father's place, miss. Well, I'd better be getting home myself. Yeah, we'll ride on south the next branch. Come on, boys. Let's go. Good night, Miss D. Good night, sir. I'll ride out this way tomorrow, John Gwynn. All right, Sheriff. I'll be here. Miss Isabella? Yes, Sheriff. This your horse tied to the fence? Yes, Sheriff, it is. Seems like he's covered with sweat, though somebody's been riding him hard. Recent. Well, good night, Miss D. He knew, but he didn't tell the others. Why did you say that you'd been here with me? You are Rhiannon, aren't you? Yes, Miss Isabella, I am. All right, Rhiannon, raise your hand. What? Who's that? Richards, my hired hand. Don't do nothing foolish, Rhiannon, or I might shoot the lady. I ain't aiming to. I've been hiding in the bushes listening to you, Rhiannon. Now I'm taking your horse, Miss. I'm getting away from here. All right, Richards, you find out who I am. But let me warn you, if you try to put me in jail, I'll find you and I'll break you in two. Boys that I work for don't want you in jail, Rhiannon. He can use you better out of jail. He's going to use you like an ox and a joke. He's going to work you and plow his field with you, Rhiannon. Well, I, I suppose there's no use going after him. I'll let him go. I'll catch up with him later on. How am I going to get home? I'll ride you back, Miss Isabella. I, uh, I still can't figure out why you did this for me. Can't you, Rhiannon? Well, you just think about it. Oh, yes, miss. I'll do that. I sure will. Studio One at CBS, you are listening to Singing Guns by Max Brand, as arranged for radio by Vincent McConnor. Our story will resume after the customary pause for local station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Continuing from Studio One at CBS. In future weeks, Studio One will be returning to the big cities and other more civilized areas for Christopher Morley's Kitty Foyle, Catherine Brush's Young Man of Manhattan, and Edna Ferber's So Big. But this week our scene is the Badlands of the Old West. Now, part two of Singing Guns by Max Brand. 
Star tonight, Myron McCormick as Rhiannon and Gary Merrill as Sheriff Karadak. seem to know everything, including my name. I guess with all these holdups, everybody's beginning to suspect that your name is Rhiannon. I had nothing to do with them holdups. And now, ma'am, if you'll allow me, I'll ride on. Wait, Rhiannon. I've been here more than an hour waiting to speak with you. Well, go ahead. Remember I told you the other day there was only one person could help me? Rhiannon, the outlaw. I didn't know then that you were Rhiannon. You can help me, and I can help you. I'm sorry, ma'am, The Dees killed my people or drove them out of the state. Now, you've seen old Oliver D. and his son. Yep, I've seen him. Well, you're free to enter their house, and you can do something for me. You can get me something from that house. I couldn't do that, ma'am. You mean you won't help me? I wouldn't never take nothing that didn't belong to me. That's fine talk for an outlaw. All right, Rhiannon. If you won't be my friend, you're my enemy. That's entirely up to you, ma'am. From this day on... You and me are enemies. The prettiest enemy I ever had, man. Come on, get up. John Gwynn, how are you? Here, in the barn. Come on in. I just rode up and couldn't find you. What are you doing in here? Where's your hired man? Richard, so he ran off last night in all that excitement. I'll keep an eye out on him for him in town. Aren't you early with your milking? I'm doing it early so as I can ride over to the D place for chow. Isabella's a handsome girl, ain't she? Mighty handsome. I rode out here to warn you that the whole valley's riled up about that holdup yesterday. I figured that. They was mighty disappointed that the posse didn't bring nobody in last night. There's to be a meeting this evening in Courthouse Square. That should be right interesting. Some folks are saying that you're Rhiannon, that you ought to be brought into town in question. They think Rhiannon's guns might have been singing again. And what do you think? If I thought so, I'd be taking you back with me. Well? Enjoy yourself over at the D Ranch, but if another posse comes riding out this way, maybe you'd better take to the hills. Go back to your hole in the wall. I couldn't do that. Why not? Because that would make me look guilty. No, Sheriff, I ain't going back to my hole in the wall. Not just yet. If I was you, I I wouldn't take any guns over to the deep place. Whatever you say, Sheriff. Whatever you say. You've lost your hired hand, Mr. Gwynn. That's right, sir. You ran off last night. I'll keep telling Mr. D that he shouldn't hire every hand that comes riding out of nowhere asking for a job. Why isn't Charlie here? Well, I told your brother Charlie was ready. said he was going to wash up. Well, I'll heat his plate till he comes. Uh, John Gwynn, um, I don't suppose you've changed your mind about selling that ranch. No, sir. I'll never change my mind about that. Well, I'll get it one way or another. Papa's only trying to intimidate you. You'll find out I don't scare. Uh, Billy, 
Uh, why don't you fetch out your guitar after chow and entertain your young man? Mr. D, you talk like you're aching and burning to get rid of my girl. Well, why shouldn't she sing for John Gwynn? Fellow's got the sweetest voice in these parts. I swear, any man with good hearing would enjoy listening to Bella sing. She's, she's got one of the spirits. That was gunfire. Who is that screamed? Come for the other wing of the house. Now, Mr. D, no shooting. I won't have it. Come along, John. What is it, Johnny? Who are you shooting at? Somebody broke into the old wing of the house. Well, who was it? I couldn't see. Sounded like a woman scream. Seemed to be two men. They broke this window open. I heard a noise as I was washing up, so I run back this way in time to see the two of them making off into the underbrush. Come on, let's go after them. They had horses. I heard them right away after I shot at them. And you didn't recognize them? Oh, they were out of sight before I could get a look at their faces. Probably the same pair that pulled that hold up yesterday. Well, they didn't find nothing here. What's in that wing of your house? Just the old trunks and boxes. Old trunks and boxes? Yeah, nothing really valuable. Hey, look here. Blood. You hit one of them. Yeah, and he's bleeding bad, too. Here's where the horses were tethered. You know, John Gwynn, I'm mighty glad you were having chow with us this evening. What do you mean? If you hadn't been, I might have thought this was your blood. No, I don't recollect losing any blood lately. Well, no point in telling the sheriff about this. Let's get back and finish our chow, and Mrs. D will be raising the roof. Come along. <laughs> Who's that? Who is it? Well, Richards, what's happened? What do you say? Here, let me help you. Oh, you've been shot. You're wounded bad. And if you die here, everybody's going to think it was me that killed you. I told you to stay away from town. Get your horse and come with me. What is it? Richards. Your hired hand? He come back in the middle of the night. Half his chest shot away. I took him in, but he's dying. I want you there as witness in case he says anything. All right, I'll come. But we're in for trouble if anybody recognizes you. We ride through town. What's he talking about? Well, I don't know. He, he's yeah. been saying that over and over ever since I found him. Well, who do you think shot him? Charlie D. Charlie? Why do you think that? Somebody tried to break into the empty wing of the D Ranch last night while I was there. Charlie tried to stop him. There was more than one of them? Charlie said he saw two. Two men. He hit one. We found a trail of blood to where they tethered their horses. And you think the one he shot was Richard's? Well, I'll never learn nothing more from him. 
Ten paces. I wonder what that means. We better get him buried and out of sight before somebody starts asking questions. Questions? Anybody but me might think you was the one who killed him. Well, you're not thinking anything like that, are you? Nope. I think their guns are singing, but I don't think they're Rhiannon's guns. At least, not yet, I don't. We'll get Richards buried, then I'd better ride back to town. And I think I'll pay another visit over to the D Ranch. This time, maybe you'd better take your guns with you. Yes, Sheriff. I was already fixing to do that. and mean. Sure. That was some crack on the head I gave you, wasn't it? You were out cold for 20 minutes. All right. So now you've got me tied up and I can't move. Yeah. And I've got a gun. You know, your father was a no-good thief. Is that a fact, Mr. D? Whatever was crooked, he was good at. Including robbing stagecoaches. Think so, eh? Yeah, and I think something else. Like father, like daughter. You've been stopping some stagecoaches on your own. That coyote who left some of his blood behind when he hightailed out of here last night. Mm, curious about my gentleman friend, Mr. D. Well, I'll tell you who he was. He was my husband. Calls himself Richards, among other names. We were here last night looking for a very interesting document. Yeah? It's a map we're after. We got one half of it last night out of one of those old storage trucks over there. Just where I thought it'd be. How'd it get here? I don't know anything about any map. Your father stole it from my family, but it was in two parts. I got a feeling the other half's around here someplace, too. I don't understand all this. What's the map for? It shows you how to get to the hiding place of quite a fortune, my friend. I've got the half of the map that shows how the stuff is hidden. It's someplace called the hole in the wall. Now I want the part that shows me how to get there. You paid a plenty high price for the one half. Yeah, you shot Richards. But he was always clumsy. Last night he went off with a hole in his chest big enough to drive a stagecoach through. <laughs> Don't think I was devoted to the gent. He had no style. Not like Rhiannon. Is he dead? My husband? If he ain't, I'd be surprised. A little cold-blooded, ain't you? Yes, Mr. D. I'm cold-blooded. Really wouldn't care very much what happened to you, unless you tell me what I want to know. Where is this place called the Hole in the Wall? I've heard of it, but that's all. Mr. D., I don't have much sense of fun, so stop playing. Everybody's heard of the Hole of the Wall around here, but nobody knows where it is. You're lying. I'm counting ten, see, and then I'm ending the argument. I tell you, I don't know. Maybe you don't, or maybe you do. 
But if you don't, it's too bad. You see this gun? You hear me count. One, two, three. Three is far enough, Nancy Morgan. Rihanna. Charlie, are you all right? Get out of here, Bella. This woman's crazy. Drop that gun. Not a chance. And if you take one more step, I'll shoot this man through the head. Rhiannon, she will. Drop your guns, Rhiannon, and fast. Well, suppose we make a little bargain. I don't need to bargain. Drop the guns. You want to find the hole in the wall, don't you? And I'm the only one who knows where it is. What's your proposition? You leave Charlie here with his sister, and I'll take you up Mount Laurel to the cave. You will? Matter of fact, I'm the only one can take you there. You see, that's where I've been hiding these past two years. Well, is it a bargain? It's a bargain. Drop your guns, both of them, and kick them over to me. Sure. Right. Now tie up the D girl and set her there against the wall alongside her brother. Rhiannon, you wouldn't. I'm afraid I got no choice, Miss Isabella. Charlie! I'm afraid there isn't much I can do tied up like this. Sit here, Miss Isabella. Oh, how could I ever have trusted you? Hurry up, Rhiannon. We gotta get up to Mount Laurel before dawn. I'm hurrying. This rope don't tie easy. Make those knots strong and put gags on them. I hope this won't hurt you, Miss Isabella. Tell the sheriff, come to a hole in the wall. He'll know. What was that you said to her? I was talking to myself. I said I hoped I could find the hole in the wall. Won't be easy in the dark. You'd better find it if you want to see another sunrise. And don't forget, this gun of mine's watching you. Come on. Let's head for Mount Laurel. Nobody's here. Rick, and this proves this Rhiannon, the outlaw? It don't prove nothing, except that he ain't here. Karanek, I still think you know more about this John Gwynn than you're telling me. Where'd you meet him? Why'd you let him live here on your ranch? Right now, I'm not saying anything more, Mr. Nearon. We only rode up here to ask John Gwynn a few questions, with no evidence against him. The fact that he ain't here don't mean a thing. Maybe he's over visiting his neighbors. All right. Let's ride over at the D Ranch. We're riding over at the D-Ranch. The D-Ranch. The D-Ranch. Rhiannon. Yes, what is it? Whoa, boy. How much further do we have to ride? Well, I ain't sure, ma'am. Mighty confusing in the dark, especially with you behind me with a gun. Uh, by the way, ma'am, your uh, husband's plumb dead. I know that. He was a fool. Well, you married him. Anything else you'd like to know, ma'am? Rhiannon, if you try to trick me, I'll kill you. I'm sure you will, ma'am. All right, then. I'm right behind you. <laughs> Sheriff? Yes, Mr. D. I've got Mr. Nearon with me from the governor's office. Mr. Nearon, eh? Has John Gwynn been here, your neighbor? He sure has. Only his name isn't John Gwynn. Charlie, no, don't. What's that you say? His name's Rhiannon. I know it. Where is he? He tied up my sister and rode off with a woman who calls herself Morgan. Morgan? Then he was right. Well, Rhiannon's taken her up on Mount Laurel. He whispered in my ear, Sheriff. Said for you to come to the hole in the wall. 
The hole in the wall? That's Rhiannon's hideout. We'll all go up there. Come on, Sheriff. You better lead the way. position for tricks, ma'am. You and that big gun. You wanted to find a hole in the wall? Well, it's just around these rocks. Can I help you down? Keep away from me. I can manage myself. You're the most trusting female I ever met. I'm a Morgan, and a Morgan never trusts anybody. All right, you lead the way. Uh, Watch your step on these rocks. They're kind of slippery near the waterfall. You know, it's funny they didn't mark on that map where the hole in the wall was located. Every Morgan knew where the cave was in the old days. But only my father and my uncle knew what was hidden inside. What is inside? You'll see in time. You know, it's a funny thing. I hid out in the cave for two years, but I never knew nothing else was hidden there. Uh, take my hand. Some other time, my friend. I ain't trying no funny business. We have to duck under this waterfall. That's where the entrance to the hole in the wall's hid. That's why nobody ever found it. Now, if you don't take my hand, you might slip and fall, and there's a drop here, straight down, or maybe a hundred feet. Take my hand. My left hand. Then I can still aim my gun at you. Suit yourself. Hold tight now. afraid we're lost. There's a fork here. We ought to go to the right. No, to the left. Karadek's gone on ahead, the fool, and I can't find the landmarks he gave me. Uh, if only the sun had come up. How many hours is it to dawn? Not long now. All right, we'll turn left. Welcome to the hole in the wall, Miss Morgan. Can you strike a light? Well, certainly, ma'am. Here we are. Seems to me I left a candle here. Oh, yes, here it is. Well, this is like coming home. Sorry you ain't got no chairs or I'd ask you to sit down. You sit down. Over there. I want to take a look at this map. You handle that gun mighty lovingly, ma'am. Sit down. I'm a second. Now then, let's see. Ten paces from the mouth of the cave. Oh, no, that won't work. Five paces to the right takes me into the middle of the cave. Well, maybe it means five paces to the left. Doesn't it say? The map reads ten paces in from the entrance. That's along this wall. Then five right. Oh, that's out into the center again. Maybe those first ten paces shouldn't be against the wall. Maybe they're straight into the cave. I'll try that. You stay where you are. I ain't moving a foot. All right. Now I take ten paces into the center. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now five paces to the right. One, two, three, four, five. You're right against the wall. The map says pull down the third stone from the floor. That must be this one. Oh, I can't move it. Want me to try? Yes. 
Come over here. But watch yourself. You never trusted anybody in your life, did you, man? Uh, when are you going to tell me what's hidden behind this stone? You'll see it in a minute. The Morgans hid a fortune here. The gold dust they took from a lot of stagecoach holdups back in the good days. Mm. The good days before Sheriff Karadak, eh? <sighs> Maybe a million dollars. And every bit of it's mine. It ain't hardly worth holding up a stagecoach nowadays. To think that I slept here for two years next to all this. Go ahead. Pull on the rocks. The sharp ones. Yes, ma'am. But hadn't you better stand back just to be safe? I'll stand right here. Now go ahead. Pull the rock away. Whatever you say. Stand back. Let me see inside. Well, there's some sort of a chain with an iron ring on it. Shall I give it a yank? I'll do it. Get away. Way over there. I don't aim to touch your precious treasure. Stand back against that wall. I'm as far as I can get without going outside. All right. Now I'll pull the ring. You're about to see the Morgan fortune, my friend. And it's mine. Charlie taking so long in the governor's office. Hey, Long, been in there no more than ten minutes. Oh, Sheriff, we've got to save Rhiannon. They can't keep him in jail. All right, Sheriff, the governor wants to see you again. Yes, Mr. Newton. This time you can bring Miss D with you. Oh, thank you. Then I'm mighty glad that we aren't in for another period of feuding between the D's and the Morgans. Come in, Sheriff. Pull up a chair. Yes, sir. Sit here, Miss D. Thank you, sir. Charlie, what's happened? Sit down, Bella. The governor will tell you. Well, it seems that the woman who died in the cave, the hole in the wall, was indeed a descendant of the Morgan family. We've already had people identify her as one of the persons who held up the stage and killed two people on the Willits Ranch last week. The second one, her husband, is the man you helped bury out on your ranch, Sheriff. Yes, sir. Those Morgans were rascals right up to the end. They fixed that wall so that whoever pulled the ring would be killed by a pile of rock. And I suppose they hoped someone from the D family would pull that ring. Very likely. Mighty ironic that their little device killed the last of the Morgans. And now, Sheriff, I want to know why you didn't arrest the outlaw, Rhiannon, when you first found him. Well, sir, he saved my life up on Mount Laurel. In the days that followed, I got to know Rhiannon pretty well. I knew then, sir, that he was no outlaw. We have courts to make such decisions, Sheriff. But, Governor... You're a lucky man, Karadek. Facts prove that you were right. We have every reason to believe that Rian is an innocent man, but he never held up any stagecoach. You mean he can be released? Now, hold on, miss. I didn't say that. You see, there's another charge against him. Two years ago, he killed a man. That was in self-defense. Well, we have to go into that. Meanwhile, he must remain in his cell. Could I see him, please? Of course, Miss D. Nearing, you take her over to the jail. Yes, sir. Thank you, Governor. I have a few more questions I want to ask your brother and Sheriff Carradine. Well, here we are, Miss. You can go ahead by yourself right down this corridor. Thank you, Mr. Nearing. He's in the last cell. 
Shannon. Miss Isabella. Hi. I've been sitting here thinking about you. I've just come from the governor. They found out you didn't have any connection with those holdups. Well, why don't they let me out of this old jailhouse? I'm sorry, they they won't let you out yet. It seems two years ago... I know. I killed a man. The governor says you have to stand trial for it. I shot him in self-defense. I told Sheriff Karadak the facts. Fellow tried to cheat me at cards. When I accused him of it, he struck me with a chair and... Rihanna! Rihanna! Look at this! It's the sheriff. Karadak, what is it? See this paper? You're a free man. What? This young lady and me, we convinced the governor that you're a law-abiding citizen. I told him the facts about that fellow cheating you two years ago and how you shot him in self-defense. This here's your pardon. You're a free man. Oh, Rhiannon. Only one thing. What's that, Karadak? You gotta promise me that you'll put those guns of yours away in a cage. They won't do no more singing. Never again. It's a promise. Now then, I'll get you out of here. Give me the key to this cell. Gus, where's the key to this cell? What did he mean about your singing guns? Well, that's some sort of an old Welsh legend, kind of a joke between the sheriff and me. Well, there's something you've got to promise me, Rhiannon, before you get out of this cell. I'm in a promising mood, man. I play the guitar right well. Is that a fact? I know Mama would say I'm being very forward. Well, she ain't here to say it. Rhiannon, you've got to promise me that any singing you do in the future, you'll do it with me. Yes, ma'am, I'm looking forward to that. Only one thing I don't like. Yes? Looks like your paw is finally going to get my ranch. By marriage. Studio One at CBS, you have just heard Fletcher Markle's production of Singing Guns by Max Brand. Another full-hour Columbia feature from the pages of the world's great storytellers. Tonight's script was prepared especially for this series by Vincent McConner, and the original musical score was composed and conducted by Alexander Semler. Now again, Mr. Markle. May a producer present the principals in our cast tonight. As outlaw and sheriff... Rhiannon. ...was played by Martin McCormick. And Karadek was Gary Merrill. Nancy Morgan. Was played by Jean Sincere. Isabella. Was Ann Burr. Charlie. Was played by Frank Butler. In active support, you heard Miriam Wolfe, Gregory Morton, Hedley Rennie, John Merlin, Robert Dryden, Louis Quinn, and Clyde North. Next week, for one occasion only, we turn over our Studio One Hour to the CBS documentary unit and their newest production, Fear Begins at Forty. Two weeks from tonight, Studio One returns with a new version for listening of Christopher Morley's bestseller, Kitty Foyle. It's a very wonderful story, and we hope you'll be with us. Now, until two weeks from tonight, until Kitty Foyle, this is Fletcher Markle with good night and thank you from all of us in Studio One. They will repeat a special message for Studio One listeners. Next week, for one week only, this time will be occupied by a new CBS documentary, Fear Begins at 40. The regular Studio One schedule will resume at the same time the week following. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
And we're back. So, Lothar, what did you think of Singing Guns? I really, really liked it. I was so, you know, before I, I really um, did any research on it, as I'm listening to it, I'm realizing Max Brand, I've heard that name before. I'm pretty sure he was a novelist. Um, and this is feeling like, you know, it was, you can tell it was adapted from, from a novel. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really good because the story was very complete. Whoever, you know, did the adaptation did a really good job of of grabbing all the things that were essential and putting it into an hour long presentation. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but um, I just loved it, um, especially when we you know get into it a little bit later. How it really does bring other myth in to help create a sense of the myth of the old west. Great. How about you, Jack? Yeah, no, I thought it was fantastic. Um, there was so many interesting elements of it that I really want to get into, of course, the details of it. And and like like Lothar said, there's just a scope that gives you an understanding that, yeah, somebody did an amazing job adapting this down to an hour from a novel. Uh, and, and it's always fascinating because I don't know if I heard the author. Did you hear the author of the script? I did, and I, I'll have to go back and check it out. They I, do say it. I think, yeah. actually, I think Fletcher Markle says it in the introduction. Okay, I yeah, uh, I, if I, I remember right. Gone back and listened uh, to it again, yeah. but yeah, let me see but if I, I did, have I it. did pack, I did catch up that uh, both Myron McCormick and Gary uh, Merrill were in it, and uh, I'm I'm mm -hmm. a fan of Myron McCormick, and I didn't realize like all the stuff that he's done. I I mean I I I I had heard of him, and I had watch some of the stuff that he'd done in um in some of this film stuff um specifically i remember a couple of alfred hitchcock presents watching when i was a kid kind oh of. really oh yeah um and and i like once i started looking up and i saw pictures of him i went oh yeah i remember him too but he was a lot of early time uh television for those kind of things and you could tell like he was he was a great player for radio for the same reason right Sure, and look, I'm, I'm glad the actors are a good place to start, because uh, I didn't know anything about Myron McCormick, so I'm glad to, to hear that in what I read. But I did know Gary Merrill, and I knew Gary Merrill from one of my favorite films, which is All About Eve. Right. Um, where he plays the director. Of course, he's married, he's married to Betty Davis. Um, <laughs> and, also he, and also he wrote, he wrote his uh, biography before he died, and, and uh, he also talks about his affair with Rita Hayworth. So... He oh was, wow! He was, yeah, he was doing all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, like that. So, <laughs> um, but he's a fantastic actor with this amazing voice. I always thought, yeah. and and they were both, um, they were both um, Broadway actors as well. Very right. accomplished bro Broadway actors. Uh, and so again, I th very I strong. Both of those two were like just anchors for the show. You know what I mean? They just worked really oh, yeah. well. People could work around yep. their voices extremely well, and they work together too fantastically. They, so now, I'm glad they you, had. yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's how I felt like you really got the. There's an interesting relationship between these two guys, and I really felt like the way they acted it, you really got to um, understand um, the the relationship they had. It felt really, really close. Did you mm -hmm. guys? The, yep. Yeah. Um, Oh, one other thing about Myron McCormick, Jack, that you I think you'll appreciate, uh, is that he won a Tony Award. That's amazing because he died uh, on stage. He's only like fifty-four. Yeah, he died in nineteen sixty-two. But you know yeah. what he won it for? He played uh, Luster Billis in South Pacific. He won the Tony Award for that. Oh, that's great. 
It's amazing. Yeah, isn't that nice. isn't that amazing? I, I didn't I know was, he was a singer. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Amazing. But but yeah, their relationship to get back to that. I just wanted to make sure I didn't forget that. There's always stuff mm-hmm. I forget to say and I think about <laughs> it afterwards. Yeah. Um but you know, their I thought their relationship was so you could just really feel the the um the friendship between those two. And the gratitude that the sheriff has you know, of him saving his life, even though, of course, he's the one who shot him, too. But, um, you know, he does save his life. So, uh, it, go ahead. It's really cool because it has some very strong, um, you know, old legendary and mythic resonance. Um, it also, you know, tells the audience exactly that, you know, Rhiannon is not a bad man. Right. Um, you know, we're telling that right, you know, right up front. Okay, we know about his character. And then we have these two people that almost seem like the the brother-in-arms soulmates that happens in so much... Um, you know, heroic literature and heroic myth where two people, you know, meet and maybe they fight at front, you know, at first, and then they become like the bosom brothers that, you know, are throughout the rest of their careers. And and I, I really liked the way that he, you know, evoked that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we can get back to, you know, this in a minute and, and cue me when, it, when it's time, uh, Jeff, because we can talk about Mount Laurel and that opening scene and how it's almost like going into a bit of an other world. But oh, um, before we uh, get off the uh, actors, I just want to uh, do a shout out to Ann Burr, who played Isabella, and Frank Butler, who played Charlie, mm. because they were both so subtle with their delivery. But the subtlety is what made the character unique. I mean, Charlie's way of asking the the questions when he's first prying into, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, who is this you know guy, um, you know, who's been around. And, and he does. Su- the actor is just brilliant. And same thing with Ann Burr, where she is just Isabella's timbre and the way she delivers her lines are just perfect. And um, it was so subtle, but uh, just I was in awe of it. I had to go back and listen to some of the lines going, wow, that was excellent. Oh, I agree. I I agree. I think that all the characters had Mm -hmm. um, this. uh, This sort of reticent. uh, It's the laconic hero. It's laconic Western archetype stuff, right? All the characters had that going on. Even the relationship between Karadak and Rihanna. It, there were moments where they were, you know, you didn't know if he was going to bring him in. Even after right. they were friends, mm-hmm. right? So yep. You, you, yep. you knew there was like this this grudging respect that beca- that becomes this strong friendship based on you, you show me the man that, you, that I think you are kind of thing, right? Yeah, and, yep. and, right. And, exactly. And, and that's that goes right back to our um our our whole concept of the american western uh you know rugged individualism you prove it to me all your pretty words don't mean much you prove it to me i think i i think i know the kind of person that you are but i'll give you this beat up old ranch and we'll see if you can if you can change your life and i don't have to toss your butt into jail kind of thing so it, it was fascinating because you know there's so many other people that, you know, they, they, they say wonderful things and they run into each other's arms and they say, you know, they're, they're great friends and the whole bit. But when you get into Westerns, there's always this sort of you get the feeling every character, even though they're friends, they're always scanning that person up and down. Yep. Because it could turn so quickly, right? Yeah, but I thought right. it was interesting because at the end, you know, it seems like, okay, all that's been put behind. Even the law has, you know, absolved yep. Rhiannon of his perceived crimes. And, and it's great. There is this whole sort of uh, testing of that. And, um, you know, he obviously passes. So, 
Sure. And that's it has to end happily that way where they ride over to the sunset <laughs> or <laughs> in one way or another. I shouldn't say always yep. happily. That's not true. It has to it has to have some kind of conclusion. Yes, it, for sure. Yes. Yeah. But I, it's, it's fascinating to me because I don't know if that's the way the Canadian um, Western. The, it doesn't have that same kind of feel, you know? Um, hmm. it, it, there's, there's, there's much more of a sense of we're all in this together, uh, in, in a lot of the, the, the Northern tales and hopefully next, uh, time we'll, we'll take a look at Canadian Western kind of give that kind of feel to it. Um, where, where there's an expectation that we're all, that we're all, we're all operating under the same rules and we're all in this for the same way. Uh, and, and that's not the the nature of Westerns. And I, and to a certain degree, I love that rugged individualism because it seems a little alien to me, but I love the idea of it. And it goes back to, we talked about this too, like Robert E. Howard's ideas of Conan and stuff like that, right? You know, you, you have mm-hmm. to earn yep. your own weight wherever you go in these kind of worlds. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the history of, uh, uh, Celtic and Scandinavian um, family sort of, uh, you know, in Scandinavian, they call it a family saga. There is that still sense of rugged individuality. And I think there's a lot of that that he pulled from his classical reading, um, you know, with the lowercase c, we're not just talking about Greco-Roman stuff here. Um, You know, all of the sort of classical historical material that he pulled from to pull into this is, uh, again, the not only the rugged individualist, but the rugged exile, the outlaw that you're not sure whether or not they um, they can be trusted, but they're usually needed in some way, again, if they wander on through in, in some of the legends. And so that, you know, there was just as much uh, old uh, Viking individualism as American individualism in this is, you know, is what I was noticing. Well, that's interesting. And, and I think that, too, there's at least once, if not twice, during the show where the sheriff, you know, confronts him basically and says, you know, your guns aren't singing again, again are they? You, you yeah. know, so there's there's that you have to keep proving yourself all the time uh, thing that's happening. Or the, the test is not done yet. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, you know, there's we, we have this. You know, and also, I think the sheriff was undergoing his own sort of test, too, because at any point he could have done what probably everybody else was peer pressuring him into do, which was just blame the guy. You know, he's an outlaw. Right. You know, let's get him. We need that. And so it was also I think both uh, both of them were providing each other initiatory tests to become something other than they were at the beginning of the story. Right. Or to manifest the potential. The potential was there, but it wasn't real. And they forged it into manifestation. Yeah, you totally get the idea that Karadak is being pressured uh, throughout yep. uh, that whether, you know, to go and get him because he is an unknown. So therefore he must be Rhiannon. By the way, I want to, I want to mention, uh, talk about the, the name. Rhiannon is a, is a, Often, at least nowadays, I don't hear it as a male name, as I hear it as a female name uh, more than a male name. It's always been a female name as far as oh, I'm aware. Too. And I noticed that they've spelled it differently uh, and misspelled it almost in two different places on the same page when I was looking at uh, the Old Time Radio Network's download one. So the one sounds like it could have been sort of a masculine spelling and the, and the other one was a feminine. So, But they only call him Rhiannon, which would be a, a first name normally. So you don't really know... I don't think they call him anything else if it's a first name or a last name in that situation. 
It's more of just a title. You think it's a title? What does Rhiannon mean? Do you know? Well, it's, I mean, I, it probably, I can't remember what it was, but it is a female goddess's name. Um, but I think that in this case, it's more of a, it's not like a title and like, oh, we're giving this to you because you remind us of it. It's more, I think, used by um, Bran to evoke an otherworldly sort of character and why he picked something male as opposed to female uh, or a female name for a male character. I don't really know. Um, except he probably just liked the sound of it. Who, you know, what did anybody else care? Sure. Well, according and, to the Welsh legend of the Mabinogion, which I, I had read years and years ago during my Arthurian studies, um, it's it's uh, it's the old Celtic name Rigatona, meaning great queen. Uh, otherwise unattested Celtic goddess of fertility and the moon. So, um, yeah. That's that's what the the initial one is, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if there's a like a male version of that, which is, uh, but I don't see any. So yeah, like you said, I I I I saw that same misspelling when we were doing some of our research. I was probably on the same website, and I think it's just a typo. I think it's people not sure how to uh, spell Celtic names, right. which is pretty common. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, that. I had I had a friend I had a friend who was in a uh, Celtic band. Um, he was in the band Gaelic Storm. It was one of the founding members. And he, um, I was asking one time, you know, you know, how do you get around pronouncing these Gaelic names? And he somewhat, somewhat facetiously, but also literally, was saying, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, they get drunk all the time. So if you get drunk like an Irishman, you'll be able to pronounce it because you'll just slur all of your consonants, and everything <laughs> will make sense. There you go. And and while we're on the characters, uh, we don't want to leave out our female villain, right? Right, Nancy oh, yeah. Morgan. Morgan. Uh, oh yeah, she's great. How did you guys feel about her? I loved her. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. <laughs> no, go ahead. But, go ahead. Uh, I, oh, she's no, she's great. One of the things I was expecting was that the whole Morgan clan was like misrepresented, and they were and they were honestly getting back their their real revenge, and that. You know, the D's were wrong and just wiping them all out. But nope, nope. <laughs> the D's were right yep. in doing it. So I was surprised and delightfully so in that it, it kind of went against, uh, you know, except uh, what you would expect in that situation. Um, so but I really liked her, too, because it's, it's so fascinating hearing voice actresses. I'm sure that voice actress could have played Isabella if she wanted to. She just, sure. you know, I need a really hard sounding female voice. Who Brooks know and and some of the stuff like you know she didn't care that her husband was dead. Yep, no. left him with a hole big enough in his chest. I forget what it was like. Drive a stage through or something like that. It's like he's probably dead now. It's like you're pretty cold. Yeah. Oh well. And then at one point she's thinking that Rihanna might as well be going for her hand. She goes, wait, maybe not right now. And he's like, no, this is not what you think it is, lady. <laughs> I'm trying to get you through the waterfall at this point. Right, so yeah, yeah. fascinating character. And uh, it's interesting because you never meet. And again, I think it's because of time, but you never meet her husband. But it's really interesting that uh, I think they, they, they introduced at least the, they kept the character of the husband in the story so that there was some question as to whether or not Rihanna was involved in holding up the stage and all that other stuff too because they had a, a man doing it specifically yeah because yep. he's you know he's yep. the spy right he's working on on the farm right the husband and so right yeah yeah exactly what did you guys think of the uh opening narration to the whole show you know what i liked about that i'm glad you brought that up but one thing i liked about it was that um they establish 
um, Karadak as the best sheriff in the, you know, in the area or whatever, the state. So right. you know that he's he's honest and he's good. So when he makes this decision to kind of harbor this criminal, so to speak, it brings up a nice contrast. It brings uh, for that character. So so I, I did like that about it. What about you, Jack? I think I think also that it was there to establish him as an equal for Rhiannon, where mm-hmm. it it's you you're you have to be careful that you have such a strong character in Rhiannon who could shoot anything, you know, the whole kind of thing. If you're gonna have somebody coming up against him, I mean, you need a you need a, a Joker to go against Batman. You need a really strong character so that there is this sense of actual danger, right? There's a lot of people who are just like, well, Nobody want to be sheriff, Melville. Yeah, yeah. About your turn. What? 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 Yeah, take this tin star. But my mom and niece, no, you're the oldest one in the town, son. You better get out there. You don't have a job. And so, so, but so the idea of you know, he's he's somebody of character, and that also sets up the conversations as Rhiannon is somebody of character, right? So. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated yep. that aspect. Yeah. And you brought up yeah, something I thought it real was quick. really oh, let me just jump this before I forget that sure. you mentioned Batman, uh, Jack, and Gary Merrill played Batman in the Superman radio drama. Oh, cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Lothar. That's Go ahead. probably why I heard his name first, because I do remember <laughs> him popping in every yeah. once in a while. Those were yeah. really funny with Batman in that, because the way he treated Robin was just abysmal in those radio dramas. It was amazing. Shut up, Robin. You know, it's yeah. like a lot of like, <laughs> the men are talking. You know, like, <laughs> oh yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Lothar. Sorry, Lothar. <laughs> oh, just I, I thought the the opening narration perfectly set the scene. I you know, I was listening. Like, oh, do I feel like it's too much? Are they relying on you know? And I. Thought it was just brilliant, you know, echoing everything you guys said, and also just his choice of words. And I'm, you know, pretty sure they probably, you know, used Max Brand's original, you know, narration or you know from his his prose, but uh, you know, maybe edited a little bit. But there's just something poetic about it that I thought really helped set the the rhythm of how the dramatic narrative would then, you know, continue for the next hour. It's a great point. Now, I, I want to, since we're talking characters, I want to talk sort of from the writing side of things, because one of the things that I'm I'm curious about, and I know maybe you can think about this too, well, both of you can, but I know Jeff is working on some uh, Westerns right now, specifically. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I was thinking about, um, as we've been listening to a lot of these, is how many characters is a minimum to create the kind of Western flavor for a domicile-style Western? When I say that, I was thinking like, a town western but it's not necessarily that you could have a big uh ranch house or something like that you know with locals and not even have a town involved so i'm just calling them domicile westerns for now i'm sure there's mm-hmm. a better term but i thought in a radio drama you're always trying to limit down your characters because you don't want to lose people on but it's really key i think to have in in, in westerns almost more than any other radio drama genre that i can think of off the top of my head well maybe in noir it's important to have like at least three side characters for the flavor and 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 Mm -hmm. so you've got these these characters so like the the simple fact of the d's right the d's household you got papa d and you got ma and you got the the daughter and 
Charlie. There was and Charlie, Charlie. That's right. Charlie too. So, um, and those, those just represent one sort of side of the things, but an important side of the neighborhood, right. Of what was going on there. So you didn't really have him go to town very often. It was like one time when he came to talk to, to the sheriff at, at, at the, at his office about something. But for right. the most part, it wasn't about, you know, who's in the saloon and who's in the hotel and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But you still had to have a variety of people in the neighborhood to give that flavor to to to, to add texture into the story. And I think in in interesting cases, the at least three side characters is most as important to setting as it is to the story itself. Oh, sure, I I agree with that. I I, I find that in the latest one I'm writing that that I'm going back and forth between scenes. I'm like cross cutting between scenes. Um, right you know of like three or four different instances th you know stories that are happening at the same time and I i'm fine that's why I, when i was writing it i said well this is gonna have to be a series because there's too much here that's why it, it's impressive like you said lothar how the writer of this audio drama uh singing guns could make this one hour show from that novel it's it's pretty impressive and do it well Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it would be interesting to uh, compare, to read the novel and say, okay, what characters got cut mm -hmm. out? Because maybe there were more characters or maybe there weren't. Um, it'd be curious to see what was done, what was left out and, and sort of analyze it uh, from that point of view. Um, for myself, I, I always, you know, it, it depends, I guess, what, what is the point of the, of the story? What is the story trying to say? What is it trying to accomplish? And you need just as many characters as, as that. And in this case, we've got two families. Um, you know, that are trying to reconcile a town caught in the middle and uh, the two main characters that are also going through their own, you know, transformations into, into you know, the next stage of their own heroic existence. And um, you've a got just enough plot. for that. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, and but, you know, so we've got yeah. the fight between the two families, the, you know, the, um, you know, the D family, we've got four, which is a nice solid number. Mm -hmm. You know, it evokes solidity, full family, you know, four legs, something stands very strong upon. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, for the, for the, uh, uh, was it Baker? Is that the name of the Morgan. Bad family? Morgan. Morgan. Thank yep. you. Yes. Um, yeah. The Morgans, it's like, they seem to be like sprawling ghosts. I mean, there's only two left, but it's almost like they are, they are legion. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. it, the ghosts of the past clan is still very present in, you know, in the life of, uh, you know, the last remaining you know, poor uh, victim of their own uh, hubris and greed. It's crazy sure. too how like that whole line of they started with the oldest and moved their way back. Like they wiped the entire place clean. It's kind of like the Black Donnellys in that respect. If you ever heard of those story tales, yeah. So yeah, because those are famous. Those are famous uh, villainous families in Canada. I don't know if you knew about that. No, I don't know about them. No. Oh yeah, they mm -hmm. did a whole interest. They've done a series of plays and and some books about. Them as well and just 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 constant feuds like these are the kind of families that you know you say the wrong thing and they go and kill everybody in your house right you know oh, it's just yeah just awful well and it evokes uh hatfields and the mccoys sure, for, for sure. um, americans yeah, as well America, yeah and you know it's it's no easy task to take a novel and make it into a boil it down into a, a smaller thing now i've never done it but Certainly, we've all seen movies that have been made from mm -hmm. novels, and we just shake our heads and go, what was that? You know, it, it's like one example. I, I really enjoyed the book, Michael Crichton's book, Timeline, 
right. that he wrote years ago. I loved the book. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And the, right. the film came out, and I watched it again the other day, the beginning, but it's it's totally unwatchable. Sure. And and I'm saying to myself, why did they do this to this story? And and you had this wonderful story, and, and yeah, you had to you know take it and, and boil it down, uh, but boy, you sure screwed this one up really badly. The medium really can change a story if it's not oh, hell yeah. held oh, sure, t- yeah. together properly. And sometimes a great book doesn't become a really good movie in that respect. And and it really takes somebody who has a lot of love for the for the media for the original source material to be able to do a really good translation. Um and that's one of the great things like talk about Bill. Bill had such love for Planet of the Apes that you oh, know yeah. When he was doing his long form of it, you could just feel it and everything that he was doing. Like he knew what he was talking about. He knew that stuff inside and out. And so we always talk about how audio drama is great for that because there are so many elements that you can do in long form audio drama. You can't do in basically anything else other than written fiction. Well, it was uh, fun for me to to see that sort of approach um, with Bill because as soon as Bill found out that I had worked in the past as a word processor um he's like oh how about if i send you some scripts to clean up for me or to scan in and turn into something that i can come back so he sent me a bunch of the um planet of the apes uh movie scripts that he had gotten as a fan over the years and then i would uh scan them in do the ocr cleanup format them and send them back to him so he could then you know put them into his word processor and then i so i was intimate with that level of the script and then he would then then i'd hear his final show and get to see what he brought in and he was like he really didn't cut things out as much as he just mixed it all together into a wonderful new recipe of you know the the movie and the books and everything oh yeah that's a i didn't know i knew you had done something like that i didn't know to that extent that's really cool and and what he did, and, and I played a character, and I don't even remember his name, but he wasn't even in the uh, the movies uh, or the books, and um, he was like a CIA guy, yeah. and and, and uh, he he was a great character, and of course he brought in General Patton, and he did all kinds of stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, as as he was wont to do, and uh, so yeah, his his uh, oh yeah, <laughs> his ex- his expanding of that universe I thought right. was brilliant. Brilliant. Just like we yeah. talked about with the NPR Star Wars. Uh, yep. you know. Yeah. Brian Daly, I think his name was, right? And and yep. uh expanding that universe and just just I find that so so fascinating and the, the fact that Bill could do it so well. And you're right, yep. Jack, his love for Planet of the Apes was was uh you know, second to none, I think. And and I remember it came back to the theaters. In I think 2016, maybe, yep. uh, or maybe before that, uh, and uh, he was he got tickets to go see it, and I got tickets to go see it. Of course, he was in Texas, and I was up here in Massachusetts. Yep. But uh, you know, we saw it like within a couple nights of each other, and we had lots <laughs> of conversations about seeing it in the movies because I had seen it in the theater in 1969, wow, or whatever 68 when it came out. I was yeah, I was pretty freaked out, um, yep. you know. But so it was fun <laughs> to go see it in the theater again. And um, with, and especially with knowing that he had seen it too, we had lots of great conversation about that. So it was brilliant. Cool. I, I, I'd, I'd want to like uh, take a sideways trip if we can, uh, because yeah, we're talking definitely. about medium and genre. And so one of the things that I want to talk about genre um, is romance. 
Um, sure. Most oh, recently, yes. mm-hmm. in the audio scriptwriters uh, group on Facebook, uh, Pete Lutz put in a, an article about things that I don't want to see anymore in uh, in writing or something like that. And they were like three different characters. And I, I wrote a, a blithering, angry response, not to Pete. I love when people write stuff, whether I like it or not, because it makes me think. And, you know, the, the three of the three characters, there was only one character style that they actually put in. The other two were just sort of plot devices. So it was really badly written as far as I was concerned. But it was interesting. And so they said, you know, capital R romance heroes. And I went, what are you talking about? Because to me, romance in, is almost like a hyphenated genre. So romance, it's sort of it, it heightens so many other different stories. So you got well. That's actually my my question is what what do you mean by romance? Sure. Because I think everybody's going to have a different opinion of what you're well, talking about. Well, she was right talking now. specifically about uh, the traditional romantic hero uh, of, and I don't think she was talking traditional in the respect as we might talk about like Arthurian romances and stuff like that. But the the well, maybe so because she was sort of bringing in sort of like the swashbuckling romantic hero who does the right thing and stuff like that. But she means she she was meaning romance as in I have an interest in a woman in a sexual you know or love way and that's part of the plot is resolving this this I think tension she was, between the I, two characters. Well, this is part of the problem was she wasn't very clear about stuff like that. But I I from what I could glean from what she was talking about. Sort of like the dashing Han Solo, uh, devil may care, uh, romantic character that, you know, falls in love and, and women love stuff like that. And and okay. dropping romance in that kind of story. And it was interesting, too, because I just finished watching, I uh, seeing a, a, a question on Twitter where a woman asked for a young adult novel uh, for 13 to 17. And she said specifically, I want a fantasy novel, has to be female character led. And no romance, please. And I'm like, what? what is the problem with adding elements of romance uh, within stories? I, I didn't respond that way, of course. I just watched it. and I, But I've been noticing more and more that there seems to be this kind of push away from that as if there's something wrong. But to me, like you said, Lothar, um, there are so many ways to look at the idea of romance. And romance itself is... For me, in, I, in movies, when you, like I said, when they use the term romantic comedy, there's always so, some sort of relationship uh, in one way or another. Um, I think of, and I've just been listening to A Princess of Mars, and the mm-hmm. grand romance that happens between John Carter and Dejah Thoris. And to, that, those kind of ideas of romance talk about character more than they talk about sexual conquest. More, you know what I mean? They, they talk about the kind of, morality that we speak of and you see those hyphenated genres just naturally connect together and so romance and western is very similar right because mm-hmm. even when you have those kind of romantic relationships show up they are backdrops for talking about a person of moral character yeah and they're also a civilizing influence and i thought we we got that very much here where again you know, and maybe in a few minutes we can talk about the the sort of mythic resonances that go on through here. But the very final thing after he's, you know, done with his whole transformation to the end and he's finally absolved and now the romance culminates and he is brought fully back into society. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that with a number of the you know, episodes where the people who are romantic in the sense of I have someone that is my love interest. Mm-hmm. 
are far more part of the civilization than the ones that aren't. Um, you know, the, the ones that are always going to be wandering or end up dead because it's just, you know, their time and that's part of the world. They're, you know, so there's, it, it brings character, but then the character is also, um, you know, a, a microcosm for the, the larger macrocosmic world that uh, we're, you know, exploring through these Westerns. And we get that a little bit here with the whole, uh, you know, shift of, uh, you know, those old days were the better days. And now we're in a bad day where, where there ain't no men no yeah. more. You know, so right. it, and, it, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think when I when I brought this forward to you guys, because I know it was kind of a deep cut, you know, finding this particular show. Um, I, I said that it feels to me like a Randolph Scott B. Western, which I loved. Right. Which I, st- I still love. and. Those movies, you know, that idea of romance that you're ta- we're talking about here was very prevalent uh, right. in those movies. So I would I would say that you know romance in that sense is a very big part in most of these westerns. So I was just watching uh, Rio Bravo, you know, right. and, or and John, or John oh, my Wayne, da- uh, my darling Clementine, oh, sure, or Shane, yeah. or you know, all of those ones, right? So. There's all of this, you know, the the romantic subplot um be in Rio Bravo between John Wayne and Angie Dickinson. Um, you know, it's it's a big part of the plot. And so I I think in a lot of these um these Westerns, you know, romance, as in love and interest and all that, plays a huge part. And I think you're right, Lothar, with the civilizing part, you know, kind of the the male animal and, and he's civilized by the female or however that works. Um, maybe part of that whole thing um, or softening him up a little bit. Uh, it's an interesting thing. What do you I had say, in Jack? my notes here. Yeah. I had in my notes here. I began with, could you stop shooting your guns? I have a headache. I was, yeah, I love it. <laughs> romance. Here's my line. Romance kills gunfighters better than bullets. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Well, I think too that that, that whole part is is we've talked about in other ep- in other episodes of this season mm-hmm. that whole idea of a world that's changing right and so many westerns live on the cusp of that world and yep. and I think that's what gives it some gravitas that's what gives us some tension in the story whether it's you know even Sheik Ma um comes out and even says it right the time for that right. is past she says something like that um, the the, yep. the daughter, yep. right, Bella. She she is very forward uh, with the Rhiannon character, right. It took much to the father's chagrin, just like we talked about in the last time um, we had we we talked about a show that the father, you know, is like, don't be so forward, dear, and and she's like, oh, you know, no, I'm not gonna buy into that. You know, I'm gonna, you know, I want you to sit across the table so we can look at each other, type of thing, and. So we're again we're dealing with this world that's going going to go through a fundamental change in the way that it was, and so many westerns deal with that particular idea. Yeah, and I think that this uh, particular uh, offering, uh, and I really want to read the Max Brand novel now to see how much of it was in the novel and and how much was the adaptation. I'm assuming the novel because of everything written about him, but. Um, you know, we've we've got all these different layers of in the same way that it works within within myth and legend of uh, resonances going on to where the world is changing 
And so are these characters. So it's like you can look at it from both points of view of like, okay, the the world is a reflection of their internal processes and their internal processes are just in line with what is going on with the world. And both, both, you know, viewpoints work. Sure. Definitely. And, um, you know, the, uh, I thought it was really interesting when they first start off and he's, uh, you know, the whole hideout is in Mount Laurel. Okay, I wanted to go back to that. So I'm glad so, you did. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I did a, I did a search for that and there is no Mount Laurel that I could find. But Laurel, you know, that, that name is, feels almost, you know, worldly mythical. Mm -hmm. Anybody who has any familiarity with Greek sure. myth is going to associate that with, you know, so much importance there, specifically Apollo. And so we're already in an other world. We're in a place to where, you know, the, the, to the first quest is um, the sheriff going, leaving the, the normal world, entering the other world to, you know, follow his quest. And his quest turns out to be something different than what he thought. Mm -hmm. um, in that other world, they make realizations. And then as I thought this was an interesting one, when, uh, when they're about to, you know, when they both decided, okay, Rhiannon, you're going to come back. And he, you know, shaves off his you know, beard and cuts his hair and all that. And on one level, it works just as a, as a plot device of here's why no one's going to recognize you. But they could have left it at that. Instead, it's like, you look like you know, you're a man half the age of what we're right. expecting. Mm -hmm. So we've got a very strong sense of renewal. Here is Rhiannon being born again for a new, you know, a new chance at life. And then as he's coming out and, um, you know, and they're, they're going down and he says, what do you think of that, uh, that ranch over there that, you know, and we get, he goes, it sort of fits to my mind like I've seen it before. Mm. And that was, you know, it, it, it really creates a resonance of, um, in like, again, some of those old family sagas from Scandinavia that I was talking about, this sense of weird or, or an old English word doom, where now we use the word doom to mean just like what's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. right. Originally, the word doom meant judgment. Um, it meant something that was sort of fated to happen. So it you could have a good doom. We just don't use that term anymore. Um, it's actually it goes back etymologically to the uh, to the same words that become things like to do. And um, there's other uh, cognates in, in other Indo-European languages. And it all has to do with taking an action that's going to have a definitive resonance to something. So he was doomed to always have this, uh, to have this ranch, to, to fill it, to, you know, fix it up and to, to enter that world and that life. And I thought that was also nice to where he, we as an audience, even though there's this feeling of a negative doom of like, oh, his past is he's going to be framed. This is no good. You know, everybody's going to think he's the one who did it. But in the back of our mind, we should know it's going to turn out OK because, you know, he he's got this connection uh, to his own fate and he's doing the right you know sort of thing. The um, the whole family interaction was uh, also nice in that. The D's we're sort of like a, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dropped right out of my uh, head. Here we go. Live radio folks. Um, yeah. No idea, but um, yeah, I just, and I guess the last sort of bit of a, a mythic resonance that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is the very end when she pulls on the ring and the falling mm -hmm. rocks fall down. Mm -hmm. There's no specific folkloric motif of like the family who booby traps their own treasure, but it sure feels like there should be one. <laughs> it feels like the sort of thing that, you know, have I heard that before in uh, Thousand and One, you know, Arabian Nights or anything like yep. that? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it felt it felt very strong that way. For sure. I, I agree. And it, I agree. And it's thinking about what you said. Isn't it in the beginning when he says that I, I didn't feel like I should live among people anymore? Right. He, he talks about his anger. Right. Correct? Yeah. And um, yeah. 
which is funny because I you don't see it. Maybe it's in the novel more than it's in this um, piece, but you don't. I don't remember yeah, seeing I was that say anger the same anymore. Thing. I saw him very reserved, like very able. Yeah. There were times people were pressing him, and mm-hmm. and he did. He didn't have. He didn't have that edge or anything. He was very controlled. So. I got the feeling that he had already started maturing right. in his exile. Okay. That and he, and he was looking back at his own past failings, um, you know, without recrimination, without you know, hand wringing and, and all of that sort of melodrama. But just he hadn't quite proven to himself that he had changed yet. And again, we have this whole initiatory thing of he's being thrust into this realm. It's not going to be easy for him. You can't just pick up and do it. You have to be put through the same meat grinder of. Um, you know, processes. And this time he passed, he didn't, you know, kill the guy, um, which maybe there would have been a different, you know, solution in the, in the previous thing that, you know, set him on that whole path to exile in the first place. But in this case, he does exactly the right thing. He keeps his cool. He does what he needs to do. And, um, you know, he becomes a very different person at the end. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's, that's it's interesting great... though. His age right. is very much the age of the hero, right? You know, the age that you expect in both Greek heroes and, and Nordic heroes to be right in their 20s kind of thing early 20s so. um some of them yeah in scandinavian ones you have ones that are in their middle ages you got it all over the place but they've got a lot of bagats right and old people but yeah but yeah it is he's very vibrant and he's he's again renewed he's he's the new young man again but he's older than his uh than his you know age would uh would indicate because he's very wise and also very accomplished for someone at that age. I mean, when he sure. first went in exile, it's like you'd barely, you'd barely lived and you're already larger than life. He, he was someone that maybe, uh, you know, they broke the mold when they made him. <laughs> Some of it grew back, but <laughs> one of my favorite lines after that, <laughs> not mine, not mine. It's uh, I forget who said that, but yeah. But yeah, they, they, they could have basically transplanted this into, um, you know, Iceland or Scandinavia of 1100 and the story would have worked perfectly and probably the same with some of the older uh, Celtic myths especially the Celtic tribes on the on the continent before they went to the you know British Isles it probably would have fit in absolutely perfectly yeah, there from a production point of view I, um, I I was just thinking of you know normally you know one of the shorthands that we all use especially modern audio day drama uh, drama creators is crickets to represent night mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting that they used frogs mm-hmm Ah, oh. 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 interesting yeah. choice. <laughs> That's right. Interesting choice. Well, it also gives you more of a of a of a regional flair too, right? So, yeah, and evokes a, a sense of water to me. Yep. Like, okay, well, there's obviously some water around. Yep. That was the other sure. thing I didn't hear very well. Now I was playing it on my speaker here at home. I didn't hear the waterfall really clearly. Did you? Hmm. No, I don't. It didn't, recall. It didn't I, strike me as like, wow, they got gallons of water to go down or anything. I was w- waiting for it, and I heard so something in the distance, but to me, it didn't sound like like realistically enough to be like a waterfall that they would go through. I don't know how they would. Yeah, do it. I didn't notice it. I didn't notice it at all. So it it really didn't make an impression on me, and that's probably a bad thing. But you know, we could at least hear the voices. <laughs> yep, that was good. Sure. I wonder. I wonder. I've never listened to anything else on Studio One, so I wonder how the overall um you know sound design is on those shows whether it's uh you know there was there was some good period music i think in in between scenes and and some good sound effects but it wasn't incredibly layered as far as i was concerned did you guys think so 
No, it was just very it was very serviceable. Yeah, it, yeah, it did its yeah, job yeah, right yeah, yeah. and didn't draw attention to itself except maybe the waterfall and uh, you know. Yeah. Yep. I and I think like like I said, I believe that the you don't hear that this was transcribed. I you right. get the idea that this was done live more often than not too. So um yeah. That, hence the hence the delivery uh, mistake when uh, right. when uh, Charlie D calls him Rhiannon instead of uh, you know his uh, his secret identity. Right. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. Good ca- yeah. catch on that because I was so into the story I missed that. So that was good. That's uh, like you said about twenty five minutes in, right? Yeah, it's twenty two minutes in. I didn't catch it till I've probably listened to it probably fifteen sixteen times, and uh, I didn't catch it till just when I re listened today, and I had to go back and I was like, wait, did he just say Rhiannon? And, mm-hmm. and I ran it back and I listened to it a couple of times. And then I, I, I said, yeah. And then when I emailed you guys and, and Lothar, you came in first and said, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And then Jackie you brought up the great point of it being alive and just maybe it's a mistake. And I, and I think so. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was really jarring the first time I heard it because I'm like, okay, you're going to accuse him of being Rhiannon. You have some evidence. Uh, nope, you're just going on. <laughs> okay, something's weird yeah. here. Yeah. So, and, and, if, and if it's live, you're right. I mean – We've all done uh, live shows, I'm sure, and uh, you know things happen, right? <laughs> and you just keep on barreling on; you don't stop, no matter. It's it's just because uh, what are you gonna do? That's right, um, Tex. I mean, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> damn it! <laughs> and, uh, that's right. And and Frank Frank Butler was great because he he didn't miss a beat. He just kept on going, sure. and you know whether whether he winced internally or not, it was enough for us to wonder: was it a mistake? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, which is that's testament to him of us going like, well, maybe there's a reason for him to do it. And it's like, maybe, well, probably not. But he was just good enough to make it seem like it was and natural. And it's not like they could rewind, the, rewind their radios. So. No, no. And I'm sure. <laughs> Did that, you? No, I sure, couldn't yeah. have been. Right. <laughs> and then it was gone forever. Or so they thought. And I'm sure people didn't catch it, you know, and, and yeah. uh, like we didn't catch it for so many times. Anything else about the show itself? The production or anything else that we haven't talked about that you guys want to I just loved it. I thought I thought for a 50 something minute show it it moved very uh very well, very it was tight. Um did a whole lot. There's a whole lot to unpack. I'm sure we could, you know, listen to it again and come up with more things to talk about that we haven't already. Um I thought that was great. Yeah, part of the problem of course is that, you know, things like Studio 1 we could do an entire season on Studio One and and sure. and do much more uh, work specifically on the shows individually when we did that. But because we haven't talked about Studio One before, we took you know some time to talk about that too. Right. So, but but you're right. It's it 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 moved so quickly. It didn't feel like it was an hour. Like I was just sitting there no. listening, and and I was like, wow, this is really just moving along. And right after another, after another, and like I said. There were times that I was surprised. I expected, you know, certain things to to go one way and they didn't. And so I was I was impressed that, you know, I, I'm not that jaded that I can figure out every Western at this point. So. No, no, no. <laughs> one thing I read about Studio One and that it only lasted one year was that Marco was very fastidious about what they did and he didn't want to have any named actors. Uh, now people would have known McCormick and in, in Merrill, but you know, not like the huge, huge, huge actors of the time. And right. And um, you know, I don't, I don't know why. Whether they ran into cost overruns or something happened, but um, it got uh, you know only that one season that it was on. But it was, it was they did some amazing stuff, like we said in the open. 
you know, some great literature. Pride and Prejudice they did. Um, well, this makes you me know. wonder, though, too, like, if you take a look at things like Mercury Theater on the air and stuff like that, those are limited shows where they focus specifically on what people consider to be the classic literature, right? So mm-hmm. uh, once you go through, you know, 30, 40 stories of the classics, uh, how much more would people be thinking of or, or aware of at the time we we have so many more stories nowadays than they even had oh, back sure. then mm-hmm. but there were specific classics that people wanted to hear from and then after that was done i don't think a lot of people would have you know tuned in for um you know uh a, a russian novel at the time <laughs> you know i mean put to sure, they, yeah. they might not have had the same kind of familiarity with it as they might have with like little women or something like that, mm-hmm. right? So no question, yeah. So that's a possibility as well. Maybe it was always meant to be limited in that respect. And it'd be really hard. Here's the brothers Do- Dostoevsky in one hour. <laughs> nope, not going to happen. War exactly. and peace in one hour. Here you go. War and peace. Here's our thirty minute adaptation of uh, yeah, crime and punishment. <laughs> it, I'm not saying they wouldn't have attempted it though. <laughs> they would, if that's they true. thought they could that have gotten true. away with it, they would have done so <laughs> poorly. Poorly, I might add, but they would have tried. So, so one of the things oh, we've been oh, doing... It would, have been, it would have been a lovely Ed Wood moment. Oh, yes. yes. One of the things we've been doing is tying it into the larger concept of the Western. Did you uh, did you guys pick up anything like that? Like um, some kind of larger myth of the Western? I know we talked about the lone hero and the outlaw and all that. Is there anything else that uh, people thought about, you guys thought about? I think he helped create it uh, more in the sense of uh, by pulling in all these older resonances that are occurring again and again and again and uh, over time, uh, he was coming at it from, I guess the way I want to put it is that uh, his work here created something that added to that myth, but wasn't reflecting upon the myth. Mm -hmm. So it almost felt like everything was fresh and and new in a different way of looking at maybe the same object from a slightly different angle. You just turn it 45 degrees and go, oh, look at that perspective. Good point. I think that um, Lothar hit the nail on the head when he talked earlier about um, how this is very much a bridge between the old world and the new world of, uh, or if you want to look at it this way, the, the individual into the group or... Uh, the, the civilization from the, the barbaric, I wouldn't even want to say barbaric, or the wild man, whatever you want to say. So mm-hmm. this is, you've you got the sheriff representing civilization and everything like that, and Rhiannon being very much for two years being on his own and not needing any of that stuff. But you have this bridge, I mean, it goes back to Kidu and, you know, Gilgamesh, right? The whole sure. idea exactly. of drawing those those two worlds together, there must be a civilizing that happens in one way or another. And the whole story of the old West is those who tamed it, who became tamed themselves. Oh, sure. And I think he does a great job of that. Yeah, I think he does. And it, you know, it it reminded me when you said that of, of, you know, the civilization and then the moving away from civilization too, like the reaction to that. And like, uh, Twain, right when he writes uh, Huck Finn, right, right. What what does Huck Finn do at the end? He says, uh, "What does he say? I got to light out for the territory ahead of the rest because Aunt Sally is going to adopt me and civilize me, and I can't stand that." <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, and so Twain, writing it a little bit later, 
right, is is uh, talking about the moving away from civilization because they're going to try to civilize me with an right. S, you know, and and uh, so it's just really interesting, interesting stuff, and and that's why I don't think that the Western should be discounted as as kind of a B grade um, genre, like I think some people do, because you know you can look at it and and. Uh, stories like this that I think are super high quality, well-written stories. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, genre fiction should never be looked down upon. It's, you know, but man, it's a whole another rant, but yeah. Well, I think maybe Jack with yours thing about the thing you talked about romance, maybe because romance stuff is looked down upon, you know, romance novels and things like that. Right. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what this person's trying to say. But but like I said, like I you know I feel that romance is a key part of the whole Western. Well, it's a key part of the whole uh, you know human experience sure. oh, too. Yeah. I mean, there's I mean even look at like so much uh, Greek uh, philosophical speculations on the origin of uh, you know the world and everything, and we have the uh, so many uh, different writers writing about things of like you know. Uh, the androgene primal thing is split into two and, and, you know, they're kind of always searching to try and get back together again. And that's, you know, kind of human existence mm -hmm. of, you know, those, those polarities to try and become whole. We see it even in, you know, things like Mozart's, the, the magic flute and, uh, you know, almost every medieval romance has some form of, uh, you know, unrequited, uh, chivalrous love. Sure. Yep. You know, some sort of longing for some ideal of what the other represents so that you can become more. And, you know, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff that then goes into Rosicrucianism. And it, it's just it's always there. It's part of who we are. Most people are concerned about their love lives. Yeah. You know, so why should we leave that out of our fiction as long as it's done well? And if someone doesn't like the way it's done, maybe they should just listen or watch or read something different. And I think you're right, <laughs> Jeff, too, that it's it's part and parcel of. Uh, the Western ethic. I mean, I, I I sat there and thought about it, and I unfortunately I think a lot in metaphor. And I think romance is facing the sunrise alone and the sunset together. Ooh, wow, nice, very nice. I like that. Write that one down if you yeah, haven't already. Like that. That's great. I like that. <laughs> wow, that's a good one. Thanks. I, it's true. I, I, I you know, Jack Ward, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we'll see you next month. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's probably a good. We're going up on two over two hours now, so uh, it's probably yeah, that, a good, that's a perfect place yeah, to to end. Good it. place to wrap it up. So, uh, really, thank you guys for uh, listening to uh, Singing Guns, and uh, I'm I'm glad you guys liked it because I I really enjoyed it as I was mining around for uh, another western that maybe said something a little bit different than what we had already done. So. Uh, well, when you first mentioned that, the one thing I will say, the only disappointment I had is that I was expecting a musical, and this was not one. <laughs> well, you had harm. When you're talking about, oh, it's a little different. It's called Singing Guns. I'm thinking, oh, is this one of the, like, you know, the singing cowboy Gene things? Autry, yeah, that would have been. Yeah, gonna paint your wagon. And there's a lot of those. Well, <laughs> I'm not fragging. I'm going to paint this wood. <laughs> well, we did get a little harmonica. Right, that's or right. Mouth, mouth organ, as they called it. Yeah. Right, right. Mouth like organ that. Work music that's there. all. That's all that we got. But yeah, well, there was lots of Gene Autry uh, AD out there, and a bunch of ton of other ones that I came across. And I've never been a real big fan of those, but I could be. Uh, my Rogers, mind could, my sure. mind could be changed. That's yeah, Roy Rogers. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, no, don't don't take my joke seriously. Yeah. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm not doing that next week. <laughs> there you go. Well, so uh, what do we got coming up as we continue our Western uh, season here? Well, I thought I'd take it to what we call a northern. Or are you are you up next, Lothar? I think Lothar's um, up, but I. Th- I think I'm up next, but I'm happy to abdicate if if you've got something you're, you're burning no, for. I'm I'm I I've, I've been okay. thinking and I've been listening, but you know, after you've done yours, I want to. I think we've talked about this enough times. I want to take what we call a northerner, northwestern, and take a look at challenge of the Yukon. But I think what we should do nice, is go nice. and 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 listen. What what do you have up? Because I'm still recovering from a concussion. I don't know who's <laughs> yeah, first or who's true. next or who's last. So. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and, and if you would stop getting into bar brawls in the saloon, <laughs> my God, man. Getting hit over the head with but, whiskey um, bottles. I, I, I yeah. haven't decided, I haven't decided on my uh, next show completely, but I think it might be a Dr. Six gun, but I'm not sure Ooh, yet. That was interesting. I, I listened to a couple of those. That was interesting. I think that brings in some cool stuff because he's from the East, right? I don't want to give anything away, but um, I think it's cool. I always get those mixed up with Frontier yeah. Gentlemen. Yeah, that's a different if, one. If you've ever listened to those ones too, as well. Yeah, I listen to those no, too. No, no. That's check those. Yeah, yeah. The, the guy goes back home in Frontier Gentlemen. I yeah. think. Isn't yeah, I think the so. son yeah. goes back home. Yeah, and I think Doctor Six Gun is the doctor who goes out west. Is that? I think so too. Yeah, that's correct. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. That'd be great. All right, right on. So the fantastic. So I want to thank you both for a uh, great conversation here. I enjoyed it as always, and I hope. Listeners do as well. And uh, so, thank you, Jack. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Always good talking with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. This was a great, great episode. So much fun to listen to and uh, and to talk about. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, gentlemen. And to all our listeners, we'll see you next time on Sonic Echo. Adios. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Now you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio drama. So yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Drama Network. Where we listen and imagine together.